All right, well, without further ado, we'll get uh, started with our first talk, which is by Jeremy Bunch. Jeremy is the uh, cause of this thing. He's the originator, the founder of the George Buchanan Forum. He is Chief Operating Officer for Columbia Plateau Producers. He is nationally recognized for his work in the food, agriculture, and ag economic industry. And he will be speaking tonight on Hard Hearts and Monarchs, Deuteronomy, and First Samuel. Please join me in welcoming Jeremy. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay, so tonight I wanna to talk about First Samuel chapter eight. This is the story of when the elders of Israel come before their judge, Samuel, at that time, and they ask for a king to reign over them, a king like all the other nations. So Israel has God as their king, but they wanna make a change at the top. And so I wanna consider this. <clears throat> I wanna show why they make this request, what are the reasons behind it, what are the ramifications once their, requ their request is granted, which it is, and how Deuteronomy chapter 17 connects to 1 Samuel 8. And then in conclusion, I wanna consider kind of a common, but I think erroneous interpretation of how Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 1 Samuel 8 connect with one another. But first, by way of introduction, I want to consider just the issue of making applications from this text in 1 Samuel 8. Um, and then I'll kind of summarize what happens in that chapter. Um, and as I go along here, if it seems like I'm belaboring some points, it's probably because I am. It seems to me that I am. Um, but they're important points, and I actually think that we'll see that it's the scriptures themselves that are belaboring the points and not just me. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about different interpretations or applications of 1 Samuel 8 because it would take too much time and Google will give you volumes of it for your free time. Um, so I mainly just want to present my observations of the texts and hope they provide some value for further thought and discussion. But just by way of a couple of examples of how this chapter has been applied, um, I'll start with John Calvin. He gave a sermon on this text wherein he says this, quote, let those who hold government posts learn from this to administer public affairs with such fairness and integrity that they may win for themselves such authority that their words might elicit trust. So they may be able to extinguish the fire stirred up by sedition, either by their own presence or by their words, and so to cut short every attempt at sedition or rebellion, end quote. And this one from Thomas Paine. So Thomas Paine wrote a tract called Common Sense, and in, in that he is um, arguing against different monarchical forms of government and in the process of that argument, he gives us a commentary on 1 Samuel 8. And he draws this conclusion from his commentary. Quote, for monarchy in every instance is the popery of government. To the evil of monarchy, we have added that of hereditary succession. One of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary right in kings is that nature disapproves it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn it into ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. End quote. And I recently read a, a reformed pastor who wrote something like this. He said, 1 Samuel 8, by good and necessary consequence, um, makes vaccine mandates illegitimate, something to that effect. So my intention with giving these examples is not to engage with any of their particular arguments, but just to show that there is quite a variety of applications that have been made from 1 Samuel 8. And they're political applications, so the stakes 
are big because if it's political, it's involving other people, sometimes a lot of other people. So I think that we need to be careful with such passages, and I do think some interpretations and applications get it wrong, and thus this talk. <clears throat> 1 Samuel, the book, continues the story of the book of Judges. In 1 Samuel, we learn the story of how Samuel is dedicated to the service of the Lord. We see that the Israelites continue to plague themselves over and over again with their idolatry. One example of that is when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And when the Ark is captured, um, Israel's priest, Eli, dies. His sons die. And his daughter-in-law gives birth to a child. And before she dies in childbirth, she names the child Ichabod. And she says, for the glory has left Israel. So the covenant between God and Israel to be his special nation is not at what we would call a high point here. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is returned back to Israel, and in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel instructs Israel saying this, quote, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines, end quote. Israel does repent, at least for a time, and Samuel continues to judge Israel, and that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we see that Samuel, as he gets older, appoints his sons to be judges over Israel, and they, unfortunately, prove to be crooked. Um, it says in verse 3 of chapter 8, quote, they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice, end quote. <clears throat> so Samuel gets older, he appoints his sons to be judges, they're, they're corrupt, and the verses 4 and 5 follow up by saying, quote, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. End quote. So Samuel then prays to God about the situation, and God responds by saying in verses 7 through 9 that the real issue here is not that the Israelites are rejecting Samuel. And God doesn't mention anything of the corruption of Samuel's sons, but the real issue is that Israel is forsaking God and serving other gods. And God says, just like they've been doing since the Exodus. So it's Israel's idolatry that's at the heart of the problem for Israel here. Nevertheless, God tells Samuel to heed their request. Samuel spells out the ramifications of having a king over them, which amounts to a people absolutely enslaving themselves to a monarch who's just going to take and take and take and take from them. And despite all these warnings, um, they tell Samuel, quote, no, but we will have a king over us, end quote, in verse 19. Okay, so that's a brief summary of chapter 8, but the following chapters are important as well, and I'll be drawing from them. So chapter 9 is the story of Saul being guided by God to Samuel. Uh, Saul is the one identified as the future king. Chapter 10, uh, Samuel proclaims to Israel that Saul is going to be the future king. Chapter 11 tells of Saul leading Israel successfully in battle. And then chapter 12 is the story of Saul's coronation, his official installment as king. So why does Israel make this request for a king? Well, first, as I mentioned, idolatry, serving other gods is at the heart of the problem. Samuel, just a, a chapter earlier, and I read this verse, commands the people to get rid of their pagan gods, their false gods and idols that were adopted from the pagan nations around them. They really, really want to be like all the other nations. They adopted these other nations' false 
gods. God has a real problem with that. Um, it's almost like Israel's request for a king was a mere insult added to great injury. They've already adopted the gods of the neighboring nations. Now they just want to replace God as their king as well. Of course, that's all tied together. Moses, Moses foresaw the connection between idolatry and unjust forms of governmental systems. Deuteronomy is Moses' last word before he dies. It's kind of a grand finale sermon where the law of God is spelled out again and Israel is warned of the consequences of being unfaithful to God and they're told of the blessings that will come by being faithful to God. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 1 through 17, kind of the first section of that chapter, reviews the observance of the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of which were to remind Israel of God's faithfulness to them from bringing them out of Egypt and now to the doorstep of the Promised Land. Moses wants Israel to keep their minds on serving God alone, and these routine feasts were toward that end. But then in verse 18, the topic transitions to how justice ought to be administered within Israel. It says, quote, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just. End quote. And then following this, the chapter concludes with two verses commanding Israel to not set up wooden images or sacred pillars, forms of idolatry, all of which God hates. So, in summary, Deuteronomy 16 says, keep the feast, keep your eyes on God, all that he's done for you, all that he's going to do for you. Serve him alone. Don't fall into idolatry. Judge righteously among yourselves with true justice and equity, and don't set up any idols or any other pagan thing. And I'm assuming here, I'm making an assumption, that Moses is not just randomly changing subjects, but rather the progression makes sense, and that progression will continue into Deuteronomy chapter 17. <clears throat> 17. Could you hand me my water, please? Um, which is even more explicitly connected to 1 Samuel 8. Thank you. So back to 1 Samuel 8. The elders asked for a king, like all the nations, and that, like all the nations, part should be particularly disturbing to us. The whole point of the people of God was to be holy, set apart, a different nation, different than all the nations around them. And so this idolatrous wanting to be like the other nations has repeatedly put them in opposition to the one true God, but they really just want it. They want to be like all the uh, other nations, and they say so explicitly. Okay, this idolatry is not expressed in, in some general terms, but we have a case in point here. They want to be governed, as other nations are, by a human king, a human king, because that's what a king, like all the other nations, is. He's human instead of heavenly, and that is idolatrous. Their desire here for a human king, like the other nations, reveals, expresses, and is their idolatry. 1 Samuel 8, verse 8, God tells Samuel, quote, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, end quote. Okay, the second reason they are asking for a king, the Israelites do seem to have a legitimate complaint as the basis for their request. 
The chapter here for Samuel 8 is introduced with the fact that Samuel's sons are corrupt and Israel's not getting the sort of administration of justice that is good and right and according to their, the instructions in Deuteronomy 16 that Moses had given them to judge with equity, not take bribes and all that crooked stuff. Now, 1 Samuel, and in particular chapters 8 and 10 and 12, just make it crystal clear. Israel's request for a king was no good in every respect. But there is one verse that seems to indicate that God was showing them some pity, some, some grace. 1 Samuel 9, verse 16, God says this to Samuel, quote, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me, end quote. So God looks upon his people. He hears their pleading. It was, it was not right for, well, no, it was right for the people to recognize the corruption of Samuel's sons. But what wasn't right was the solution that they came up with to make changes at the top. To reject God as their king as a solution was foolish. There were other options to deal with Samuel's sons, but Israel chose an idolatrous solution. But I think that this is important. Um, Israel's request for a king, as bad as it was, and in a moment I'll highlight how foolish I think it was, but still God is the kind of God who listens to his people. He cares about his people. In their wickedness, they ask for something. They're told, take that request back. It's no good, but they double down on it, and yet God cares for them. He wants them to be faithful and prosper, even though they're entering into something extremely foolish. The third reason Israel asked for a king is that they really wanted a human king to go before them in battle. 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20 says, and this immediately follows Samuel's just scathing review of the tyranny that Israel will now accept. It says this, quote, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the, the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. End quote. And Samuel says in chapter 12 at Saul's coronation, verses 11 and 12, quote, and the Lord sent Jeroboam, Baden, Jephthah, and Samuel, all judges, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. End quote. So this is a big part of the problem here. Israel is showing a complete lack of faith in God, that he's going to provide for them and protect them from their enemies. And we learn here from this passage in chapter 12 that the Ammonites had risen up against Israel. And it's at that point that they come asking for a king. So now what are the ramifications of their request for a human king? What is that going to mean for them? We've looked at Deuteronomy 16, but let's now turn to Deuteronomy 17. Remember that the end of chapter 16 concludes with a prohibition on idolatry and paganism. And then it naturally segues into Deuteronomy chapter 17, back into the topic of how justice should be administered. And so chapter 17 continues to instruct Israel that they are to judge among themselves. The law is there, it's objective. But if there's a matter that's too difficult for them to adjudicate, they're supposed to take the matter before the judges or perhaps to a priest. 
And then whatever judgment is handed down from the judges or priest, that's to be honored and obeyed. It's to be followed. End of story. But then there's an interesting thing that happens at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Moses says this, quote, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are, that are around me. End quote. Stop there for a second. So Moses here is prophesying. He's foretelling the future, and he gets it pretty much word for word. Okay? What he says is going to happen is exactly what happened in 1 Samuel 8. They're not just going to ask for a king. They're going to ask for a king like all the nations that are around them. Let me read it again, but with a couple of following verses. Quote, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. End quote. So what I want to point out here is we have kind of this when-then pattern. When this happens, then do this. Because Moses is, is foretelling the, the future here. He's predicting. So when Israel asks for a king in their idolatry, in short, then the king should be a good king. So Israel, in 1 Samuel 8, they're, they're playing their Deuteronomy 17 card. Despite being warned by God through Samuel that it's not going to go well, they insist on playing that card. Was it lawful, in a sense, for Israel to ask for a king? Well, yes, in a sense it was. God was willing to allow them to ask for a king in Deuteronomy, and we see it again in 1 Samuel. He still allows it. But is it good? Is it righteous? Is it wise? What the Israelites are asking for here is a wholesale change, just a complete, a complete paradigm shift. And the structures of society will be redefined. <clears throat> and in getting what they want, they will have su successfully shed from themselves the responsibility that God had given them to judge among themselves and to act with wisdom and maturity and nobility. And they want to shed their responsibility just to trust in God as their judge and king. Now, though, the king will take responsibility for them, and he can be their scapegoat. I think that they have that in mind. He can follow the Lord's instructions or not, and the people of Israel are going to follow in the wake either way. God will go before them in battle. He's going to fight their battles for them. Or, I'm sorry, their king will fight their battles for them. And so how foolish is this? Okay, Israel, it's been pointed out to them that all of the ways that this is going to be bad, this is going to be extreme tyranny, and yet the people of Israel say, yes, we want that. We want that. But not only that, and, and we'll see this play out in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, that when the king does not obey God, when he's unfaithful, he gets judged by God. And those judgments don't just affect the king. The people suffer as well. And they can't escape from this new structure of society. They can't get out of it. They're stuck. The warnings from 1 Samuel 
8 include the king will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your first fruits and give them to his friends, his cronies. He will take your assets and put them to work for him. He'll confiscate, he'll seize the means of production, use them for his own. He will take and take and take, but as we know, they insist on playing this Deuteronomy 17 card. It's so foolish, it has to be idolatry. 1 Samuel 10, Samuel proclaims to Israel that God has chosen Saul as their king and says, quote, But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all of your adversities and tribulations, and you have said to him, No, set a king over us. End quote. I feel like I'm belaboring the point. At 1 Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel 12, at Saul's coronation, Samuel says this, quote, now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from, the fo from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, end quote. So the Israelites themselves come to the point where they recognize, they realize that they deserve to die over this wickedness of asking for a king. If they died that day, they would have deserved it. And so they beg for mercy. Okay, in conclusion, um, as I said, I wanna, wanna kind of wrap things up and present my conclusions. What's the main point? But do so within the context of uh, critiquing a sort of a, a very common, but like I said, I think uh, a, a common interpretation of this that I think just doesn't hold up, but I hear it often. It, it, and it goes something like this, that what Israel asked for in a king was bad, but it wasn't all bad. It was the part of asking for a king like all the nations, like the other nations. That was the bad part. They should have just asked for a king that was righteous, that was non-pagan, and Deuteronomy 17 clearly gives them the allowance to ask for a king. But that's not really what Deuteronomy 17 says. It's not talking about a scenario where Israel asks for a righteous king. Okay, That's not a scenario in 1 Samuel, and it's not in the mind of Moses either in Deuteronomy 17. Um, remember, Moses says, you're going to ask for a king like the other nations. And that's right. That is the bad part. But Deuteronomy 17 is simply an instructional on what to do once Israel makes their idolatrous request for a human king. And that's the difference. That's the distinctive factor. A human king versus a heavenly king. Being a human king here is the definition of a king like other nations. And I think this is clear from the scriptural context in 1 Samuel, much of which I've read. Not only that, but Deuteronomy 16 and 17 are both very clear about what God's will is for the people on how they should rule themselves, with the judges and the priests as well. That's what God wanted. 1 Samuel, which shows the utter wickedness of Israel's request, is a perfect commentary on what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when he predicts Israel's going to ask for a king. So here's kind of the bottom line conclusion that I have. Deuteronomy 17 is no endorsement at all for Israel to ask for a king. 
And a parallel here would be Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says this, and this is a little bit long, but bear with me. Quote, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, end quote. So what I want to point out here is, is notice that when, then pattern again. When he divorces her, then this or that must happen, or then this or that must not happen. It's the same pattern as Deuteronomy 17. And how does Jesus handle this issue of divorce when he's presented with Deuteronomy chapter 24? So in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him, it says, and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus responds by pointing back to the natural order, to the creational order. He doesn't argue the technicalities of the Mosaic law. He basically says God created male and female at the beginning, there to marry, become one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. But then the Pharisees come back and they say, well, why then did Moses allow divorce? Cross-reference Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Jesus again points back to the creational order. He says, Moses permitted divorce. Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, it was not so. So that carries great weight. So just because something is permitted in the law, it does not mean that it is necessarily good, wise, righteous, or preferable in any way. So to wrap it all up, in the light of 1 Samuel 8, Deuteronomy 17's allowance for a king is simply an allowance for a hard-hearted people. And if the Pharisees would have chosen that issue, the issue of kings to test Jesus, maybe they did at some point, it would not be unreasonable to think that Jesus would have pointed back to the creational order and again pointed out their hard-heartedness. Thank you.